0: Pastor Dave sent me a text about ten days ago when I was on a beach in South Carolina asking me if I would preach today. My immediate response was, no, I'm never coming back to Rochester. (laughs) Uh, But then I looked at the passage, and it's entirely about the Father and the Son. I said, how can I preach on Mother's Day about the Father and the Son? So when Dave comes back, we're going to make him preach a Mother's Day message on Father's Day, okay, (laughs) because I don't have one today. Mark Twain once said, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Those two days for me were August 9, 1955, when I was born of my earthly mother that I love very much, and October 8, 1989, when I was born again by my heavenly father, who I now worship. Today's message is very much about that. Well, let me start with a little story. Years ago, I, I had a business in Hawaii, and I had a fly out from New York to close the business down. And as I was packing up a bunch of equipment, getting ready to get on a plane, I saw some Jehovah's Witnesses talking to a lady um, at her doorstep there. And they left and I got in the car and I felt I should go say something to the lady, but I was late for my flight. I said, I'll just take a minute. So I ran up and I knocked on the door and she go, who is it? And I said, well, I'm a Christian and I want to talk to you about the people who just came to your door. Okay. I said, did they by chance share a scripture with you that said, we are, you are my witnesses declares Jehovah and my servant who I am chosen that you may know and believe that I am he. She goes, well, they did. How did you know that? And I said, do you by chance have a Bible in the house? She's not letting me in the door yet. And uh, she said, well, my husband just died and he has a Bible. I'll go get it. So she gets the Bible and I said, I showed her where that passage was. And I said, if you keep reading that passage, it says, understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will be there any God after me. And I said, if you turn over another page in Isaiah to verse 44:24, well, first it says in verse 11, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And then the next verse I showed her, it says, thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And she looks and she goes, my husband underlined both of those verses. And I said, well, what can we learn from them?" We can learn that there is one God. He created all things by himself. He is the only Savior. He is the only Lord. So then I went to John one one that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and all things were made through him, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I said, Jesus is the one Lord. He is the one God. He's not another God. I said, have you ever heard the, the Christmas story when the angels appeared? She said, yeah. And I said, what did they say? They say, Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you see that the God of the Old Testament, who is the one Lord, creator, and Savior, is Jesus Christ? She says, I see that. And I said, Those people who came to your door don't believe that. So please don't listen to them anymore, but believe in this. I shared the gospel with her, and she said, I believe. I believe what my husband believed. And she said, You know you're not what I was expecting, but now I know you're an angel. And it's like, here's my wife's phone number, call her. I, I am not an angel. Um, she goes, how else would you have known what they told me and all the verses that my husband had underlined in his Bible? I said, well, your husband underlined most of the Bible. Um, but I said, look, listen to this radio station, call this pastor at this church, and you'll be in good hands. And then I probably shouldn't have said this, but I said, I got to fly now. (laughs) I got to go to New York. She goes, I knew it. I'm going to tell all my friends that I was visited by an angel. The second half of John chapter 10 kind of plays out that way, where Jesus stands before a bunch of people saying, I'm your Messiah. And they're saying, no, you're not. You're not what we expected. He said, "Well, look. If you don't believe my words, at least believe the works. At least believe the things that you've seen in me. Like this lady. Maybe not have expected, you know, me to show up that way. I thought about. It. What do you mean you didn't expect? We expected Michael the Archangel, big, tall, good-looking guy with robe and wings. And instead, you got Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it was a, a. They weren't expecting their Messiah, right? They were looking for a man." possibly a lesser God at most, but certainly not Jesus of Nazareth, not an illegitimate son of a carpenter and a lowly handmaiden, not a pacifist from Galilee or someone who spoke out against the Jewish leaders of the time. They wanted a deliverer like Moses, a prophet like Elijah, a priest like Melchizedek, a great king and conqueror and politician like David, they didn't see that in Jesus. It's not what they were expecting. But most of all, they wanted a savior from Rome and the Roman oppression, not a savior from their sin. But Jesus come and says, look, if you can't believe my words, at least believe my works. And if we look at what he says in this particular passage, he says, I and my father are one. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the Father. This is the point that he's trying to make. He said, look, the Father has sent me. I'm doing the works and giving you the words of my Father. And if you believe in me, you will have eternal life, and you will be in good hands. So let's take a look at the setting first in John 10:22 and 23. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now, the first half of chapter 10, where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd and all, that Dave preached on last week, actually happened during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was earlier, probably September time frame. This now is the Feast of Dedication, or the Feast of Lights, which is also today known as Hanukkah, which was probably the end of November, December. So Jesus had gone away for quite a while, and he had come back. Now, the Hanukkah celebration is one where they were rejoicing that in 164 A.D., uh, there was a Maccabean revolt. uh, Judas Maccabeus led some people to overthrow a wicked Hellenistic king who had destroyed the temple, basically, and sacrificed a pig there and forbidden all things Jewish. And they had actually successfully taken back the temple and restored it as a place of worship. That's what Hanukkah celebrates today. So Jesus was there, it was not required that Jews be in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, but some say that Jesus went there to prepare for his final week of life, which was only months away at this point. It said he was walking in Solomon's colonnade, or Solomon's porch, when Babylon came and destroyed Solomon's temple in 587 BC. They left one big wall standing, and later the Jews went and put a bunch of big columns up and put a roof over it, and it was a place where they would gather to talk about God and his word, and it was known as Solomon's porch, a place they often came in the wintertime because the weather was so bad, it would shelter them from the cold and the wind and the rain. So this is where Jesus is, and it does say it was winter. Uh, often you'll find these t- phrases in the scripture like it was dark or it was winter, not just meaning that it was cold and it was that time of year, but that it was a spiritually cold time, that Jesus is coming close to the end of his public ministry now. After this dialogue, he goes away with his disciples in private for about two, three months. Then he comes back, raises Lazarus from the dead, and the entire rest of the book of John is about his, his trial, death, burial, and resurrection. So he's almost finished his spiritual ministry here. It's dark for the Jews who are looking just to trap and kill Jesus. They are spiritually dark. Jesus comes to him and says, look, I'm offering you a final chance to believe. Believe in my works. John writes that if all the works of Jesus were written down, the volumes of the books of the world couldn't contain them. But he says this in, in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is almost exactly how this half of the passage plays out. Jesus first claims to be the Messiah. Then he claims to be the Son of God. And then he tells them that there's eternal life in his name for those who believe. So that's how I want to try to approach the passage as we look at it today. So the first is let's look at, Jesus telling them to believe in the works of the Messiah in verses 24 to 26. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe the works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, this was a large crowd, and there's some that probably genuinely want to hear Jesus say out loud, I am the Messiah. But the Jews who are asking the questions, they've already made up their mind. They're trying to trap him. This is the fourth time that they're trying to get Jesus to blaspheme by claiming that he is God so that they can stone him to death on the spot. So they weren't being sincere at all. They say, look, I I, I know You know, you're not the one. You're not what we're expecting. You can't possibly be him. And Jesus says, but my works prove that I am your Messiah. Look at the things I've done. Remember Moses. Pharaoh didn't believe that he was the one until he did all those miracles in front of him. And then he finally came to believe. But nothing, nothing that Jesus would say would convince these Jews. You know how it is sometimes when people want to find something wrong with someone and they will push and push and push and push until they find it. And they continue. We see this in the political world today. They don't stop and they keep working till they trap somebody finally to where they can catch him and find an offense. Well, that's pretty much what this is going on here. The Jews know there's no crime in Jesus, but they're still asking him questions, waiting for him to say the one thing that, that they can take him down for. And Jesus comes back to him and says, look, you're not with me. You're against me. You're not my sheep, but at least examine the works that I've done. He says, the works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. So then they say, wait a minute, when when did you tell us that you were the Messiah? Because they first said, how long are you keeping us in suspense? Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? He said, I told you, I am. Well, the only recorded instance that we know is the Samaritan woman at the well when she asked, and he said, yes, I am the Messiah. And of course that word spread, but we don't know where he told them directly. But there was many times when Jesus said things to these religious leaders, such as, you must honor me as you honor a father in heaven. I can work on the Sabbath because I'm doing my father's works and he's always at work. I will raise people up at the last day and judge them because I've been given authority to do so. I am the bread of life. Believe in me and you'll never hunger. Only in me will you find a fountain of living water that you can come to and never thirst spiritually again i am abraham's god i existed before abraham and he was glad to see my day and yes i am the great i am that met in the in the burning bush i'm the good shepherd who's known and loved by my father and i'm the giver of eternal life i told you i'm your messiah they didn't believe He said, but what about the works I've done? I changed water into wine. I've walked on water. I've calmed the storms. I've shown you I have power over nature. I've fed more than 5,000 people at once, showing I have the ability to create out of nothing. I have healed an official's son from a distance. I have given the blind sight. I have made the lame walk. Who else has ever done that? And still they didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? Well, there's at least two reasons. One is given in John chapter 3, 19 through 20. John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. This is why Christianity is so hated today. People don't want to hear the Christian message because they know they can no longer live in their sin. The conviction is too much for them. John MacArthur said, you know, if you're going to go around and and talk about peace, love, joy in heaven, well, you'll be pretty big on the, the TV circuit. But if you're going to go out and talk about sin and repentance and conviction, you're never going to find a seat on Oprah's couch, right? There's a part of the message that needs to get out and people don't like it, it's The first reason is people love their darkness. I had brought someone to an Easter morning service one day, and afterwards he said to me, Dan, you never have to preach your gospel to me again. I heard it plain and clear. I know what I have to believe, but I'm not going to because I love my sin too much. At least he was honest. At least he was honest, and it shows, shows the scripture to be true. But the other reason is given right here at the end of this passage. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. They are not Christ's sheep. Remember, this is, again, Jesus started earlier in the chapter talking about in reference to a good shepherd where he knows his sheep and they know him and he, they hear his voice and they follow him. But he said, you don't believe because you're not one of them, which brings the great debate of all centuries that Pastor Dave touched on last week and then got out of Dodge. You know, the question is, are we Jesus's sheep because we decided to believe? Or did we decide to believe because we are Jesus's sheep? Right? In, the, in the first case, salvation is based on the sovereignty of man and man's free will choice. Everybody's given just enough faith to believe, and it's their choice as to whether they do or not, and God wishes that all would come to faith and that, that uh, none would perish. In the second case, you have, well, it's the sovereignty of God that he chooses for his purposes that people are totally dead in their trespasses and sin and unable to respond in any way, and that the only possibility of them coming to salvation is through the leading of the Father, which Jesus says in John chapter 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. There are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So you have this conflict where people don't come to Christ and believe because of their sin and the darkness and they don't want the light to expose it. And then you have Jesus clearly saying that you don't come to me because my father hasn't drawn you. So which one is it? They're both in scripture. They both must be true. I don't know how to reconcile it. I don't think anyone does. I know that no one is saved by election, Because we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sin and by nature children of wrath. And yet a little bit further out in the chapter it says we're saved by grace through faith. That there is a part in which God chooses and there's a place where we need to believe and follow. Uh, D.A. Carson says that they are not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them, it indicts them. Well, that's a hard thought, right? um, explain that one to me. I do know this, that God is omniscient. He's known all things, knows all things, always has. He stands outside of time and he knows who his sheep are. And he knows who it is that he's given to Jesus. And if you're not one of his sheep, you won't believe, you don't believe. It doesn't say these people won't become his sheep in the future. Nicodemus was one of these Pharisees that was among the crowd at one time, a sheep, but became one. I don't know. All I know is both these things exist in Scripture, and I believe the key is to discuss these things and not come down too hard on one side or another. I know that my doctrine has changed in this area because of some very loving conversations I've had with some brothers in Christ over the years, and I just hope that we can have that same kind of open dialogue but I did find this quote from a, a political scientist, Paul Lazarfield. He studied the 1940 presidential election and he said, so it is that more people read and listen, the more convinced they become of the rightness of their own position. <laughs> Have you noticed that to be true? We can get very dogmatic and very divisive and fighting over things that are very difficult to resolve. But the point is that the Jews here had made up their mind and they would not believe And in the next chapter, God raises Lazarus from the dead through the working of Jesus Christ, and it says the Jews were all the more determined to kill him. They had made up their mind, and everything just made them go down the one path. And he said, look, I am your Messiah. I am the Anointed One. I am the Savior of Israel, but you don't believe me. You don't even believe the works I do. Well, maybe you'll believe the works of the Father. So he continues his discourse with them. He said, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, nor or no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Back at verse 25, Jesus said, The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. When you do something in someone else's name, you're doing it in their power or their authority or their reputation. If I said stop in the name of the law, I'm commanding you to do something because of the power and the authority of the law that's behind me. Jesus said, go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the power, the authority of the triune God. And this is what he's saying. The works that I do, I do in the name of my Father, and they testify of that. But what does the Father do? He says in this passage that the Father gives me sheep. That's one thing. He secures those sheep in his hands so that no one can snatch them. Jesus said, don't you understand? I work constantly and seamlessly with my father. The works I do are his works. The words I speak are his words. I and the father are one. We are the almighty God of your Jewish Bible. We are the God of Genesis 1-1 that created all things. He is not claiming here just to be one in purpose or resolve or theology or mission or opinion with God. He's claiming to be one in essence, one in character, one in the very nature or being of God, equally God, but separate persons. John starts his gospel that way. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And through him, all things were created. He makes it very clear. That God is Father, Son, Spirit, and in this case, particularly, it's the Father and the Son are one, equally God. Paul writes in Colossians that the Son is the image of the invisible God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews, the writer says in the first chapter about God's Son that he's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact representation of his being. And a little later on in John 14, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not saying, I'm in union with God and fulfilling his mission. He says, I am God. The Father and I are one. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying. Look at this last verse. We're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There's a lot of people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I believe he did in the first 11 chapters of John in every single chapter. And this is a very clear one right here. He is claiming to be God. He's telling them, I am the father. I am the God of Abraham. and not the father in that sense. The, the, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am the father's, your forefather's God that you knew. If you reject me, you reject him. You reject his works that I've been doing. Worse than that, you have attributed the works I'm doing to Satan. You said that I'm doing this by the power of Satan. And yet you accuse me of blasphemy. It's I that should accuse you of blasphemy. You don't believe I'm doing the works of the Messiah. You don't even believe I'm doing the works of my Father. But I can still claim to be doing the works of the Son of God. We read this in John 10, 34 to 39. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart in his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to grasp and seize him, but he escaped their grasp. This is kind of a quick theological maneuver that Jesus pulls to maybe get him to put down the rocks for a minute. They're, they're just ready to stone him right now because he claimed to be God. And he said, wait, let's think about this for a minute. Um, First of all, you probably should have known that God has a son. Because in Proverbs 34, the rhetorical question is asked, who has established all the ends of the earth? God. What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you should know. And he's saying, I'm claiming to be that son. And how does he do it? He goes and he quotes a rather obscure Psalm 82, talking about men being gods. The psalm was written about leaders and judges in Israel. And in it, God says this, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fail like every other ruler. And Jesus said, wait a minute. There's been rulers and judges in Israel that didn't do a very good job of representing God. But God still called them gods, little g. So if I'm one that the Father has set apart for his purposes and sent into the world directly to represent him, why can't I be called the son of God? It's great. It's great. I mean, he's just He's wonderful in how he uses the scripture. He's doing a rabbinical trick of going from the lesser to the greater, from mere mortals as gods to deity in the flesh being the son of God. Is something they they did often. Um, We stopped at Chick-fil-A on our trip home this week, and they were playing Christian music, and I just kind of laughed for a minute, and I thought, you know, the owner of Chick-fil-A, he's had to fight really hard to get a store in New York. He's been boycotted and everything else, and he says, for which of my works, which of my products do you boycott me? Is it my delicious chicken sandwiches? It is it my golden waffle fries? Is it my sweet southern tea or my hand-pressed lemonade? For which of these? And it's like, well, it's for none of those, but we're boycotting you because you're a Christian. He's like, oh, wait a minute. What about Dave Thomas at Wendy's? He was a Christian. What about Colonel Sanders at Kentucky Fried Chicken? They both believed in the sanctity of marriage, and they both served chicken. Why can't I? Do you get the analogy? Well, you went over the line. You closed your business on Sunday. You make your people talk nice to their customers. You play Christian music. And worst of all, not only do you believe in marriage between a man and a woman, but you funded people who do. You see how it's like Jesus is making this analogy? Like, hey, wait a minute. Other people do it. Why can't I? Well, because you do it a little too much. It, it, it was showing their hypocrisy and kind of diffusing the situation. But he reiterates the oneness with the Father. And he calls them to believe one last time here at the end here. He said, look, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works. That you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What was their response again? They tried to seize Jesus' escapes. They just became more convinced of Jesus' blasphemy, more determined to kill him. But then he goes into a a hiding with his disciples for about three months and doesn't appear again until the time of the Passover, his final week of his life. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you have eternal life in his name. Jesus goes here at the end of the chapter back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Belief. It's coming to believe. Jesus is asking, believe. Not join a church. Believe in me. It's interesting where John's ministry started, Jesus' ministry is now ending. John performed no miracles himself, no signs, no wonders, but the people believed in Jesus because everything that he said about Jesus was true. Oh, that would be of our church here at Orchard, right? We're not going to be performing signs and wonders, but wouldn't it be great if everything we said about Jesus was true so that people could believe? What a fantastic ministry John had, and yet John doubted. Remember in Matthew When he says to the disciples, he's seen the deeds of the Messiah, but he said, please go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Maybe, Jesus, you're not the one I was expecting. There's a lot of messiahs running around, do a lot of things right now. Did I get the right one? What does Jesus tell them? You go back and tell them about my works. You go tell them that the blind receive sight that the lame walk, that those who have leprosy are cleansed, that the dead hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. If you don't believe in me, if I'm not what you expected, at least believe in the works I do. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. We should not expect another. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We need to believe that he is the great I am. We need to believe that he is the eternal God. And what happens when we do believe? Well, then he gives us eternal life. Let's go back up again to verse 26. He says, "'But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. "'My sheep listen to my voice. "'I know them, and they follow me. "'I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. "'No one will snatch them out of my hand. "'My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. "'No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand.'" I and the Father are one. How many of you have insurance with Fall State? The good hands people. They come to sell you a very expensive temporary life insurance. Jesus has come here offering a free eternal life assurance. We're in good hands with Him. And He says it this way In the positive, they have eternal life. In the negative, they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of God's all-powerful hands. Well, are you saying one saved, always saved, Dan? I mean, this is a tough doctrine. People don't agree with it. And I I read where um, Dr. Harry Ironside, who was a pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, once preached on this, and a woman came up and said, I don't agree with your interpretation. And he said, of what? And he said, the fact that I give them eternal life, they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he said, I didn't interpret that, I read it. And she said, well, I still don't agree with your interpretation. He said, well, what if I read it this way, that all who come to believe in me, I will give them life for 20 years, and they will not perish for 20 years, and no one will snatch them for 20 years. How long do you think they'd be okay? Well, 20 years. Well, what if I said 50? Okay, 50 years. And then he said to her, the Greek text is very strong at this point. What it literally says is they shall not ever perish forever. So let's read it this way. I give unto them life forever, and they shall never perish forever. Do you believe that? He asked her. She said, not according to your interpretation. (laughs) A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Right? There is... This is not a question of whether you can lose your salvation. This is a question of whether or not you're God's sheep. If you're one of God's sheep, he says, you will never perish, and you're safe in his hands. And that's all I can see that John in chapter 2 of his first epistle writes about these antichrists that have gone out from them. And he said, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. There's the parable of the sower where people tend to bear fruit for a good time and then they fall away. Not truly God's sheep. It's the only way I can reconcile it. Jesus said, if you are mine, if you know my voice, if you follow me, then you are one of my sheep and you are eternally secure in the hands of the good shepherd. So how do you know if you're one of his sheep? Believe and you will be. And if you've already believed, then do you have that desire to follow? I'm assuming since most of you are here today to hear God's word, you do. But this is important that he says, look, my sheep will hear me and they will follow me. And that is the purpose of our church, to make them become fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to be able to encourage you to follow Jesus. That's the passage, but there's a couple things, since we've got a few minutes left, um, I don't want you to miss. It says the Father gives all the sheep to Jesus and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And then he says, for my Father is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Whose hands are we in? eternal God, Father and Son and Spirit, but in this case, Jesus made a claim to be God there. He could have missed that, that his hands are the same as the Father's hands. In verse 35, when he, he, he goes back to Psalm 82, he says, if God called them gods, little g, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, notice what Jesus did there. First, he said, the word of God is scripture. Scripture. Scripture is the word of God. Jesus actually said the word of God came to the people and that scripture cannot be broken. And then he said not only that, the word he used was cannot be set aside, which means it cannot be ignored, it cannot be disregarded, it cannot be dismissed, it cannot be broken. The Bible is one continuous chain and no link can be broken Every jot and tittle is important and it'll never pass away. And Jesus made his point by going to an obscure Psalm and taking obscure word, gods with a little G and defending his deity with it. And he's telling us, look, there's parts of scripture that you may have to wrestle with, but you can't ignore them. You're going to have to deal with them. And you know what? When, When this happens to me, when I get into these situations where I see these things in tension, I do what John the Baptist did at the end of his ministry. I say, he must increase and I must decrease. How can I view this passage to give more glory to God, to, to, to make him greater and me lesser? And I found in every time it winds up helping an awful lot. Don't miss this, that Jesus was a man. The Jews said, you being a mere man, claim to be God. There's a lot of people, even in scripture, it was fought in that time that people believed Jesus was a, a, a spirit or an idea but he said, no, he was an actual man. And you need to believe that he was an actual man who died and rose physically from the dead or you have no hope. But don't miss the other things about Jesus, right? This was Hanukkah. Everybody's gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate an earthly deliverer who, who overthrew, uh, you know, an evil king and they're missing their divine redeemer who's standing right in front of them. It's the festival of lights and the light of world is standing right in front of them. And they're ignoring who he is. It's Solomon's temple in the background. And Jesus is telling them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And he was talking of the temple of God, his body. How often do we miss Jesus when we're looking for things? And one one more thing. Jesus escaped their grasp. How does he do this all the time? Is he like you saying bolt just faster than everybody else and he can get away from a large crowd? I remember in the movie Ben-Hur when Charlton Heston wants a cup of water and the Roman soldiers forbid him to have one. And then you see from the back Jesus walking up, giving him a cup of water. And as he's drinking, the Roman soldier comes with his whip, and I said, that man was not to have water. And Jesus just looks at the man. And the man starts to lower his, his whip, and then he looks at him again, and then he lowers his whip and walks away. Jesus has this commanding presence. And he was able to walk among them without anybody touching him. You know why? Because no man can thwart the plans of God. It was not his time yet. And so Jesus was able to escape. Don't miss these things about Christ. Last August, my family was gathered around my mom's bed when we saw her breathe her last. I miss her. It's my first mother's day without her. My wife then looked at the clock and said, Time of death, 623. And I thought of Romans 623 and I said it out loud. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. My mom believed. She persevered to the end. She loved Jesus more every day. And she entered into the presence of God and it was not what she expected. She used to have a painting hanging in her bedroom of Jesus. You've all seen it. The the pale-skinned, blue-eyed, long-haired guy. Isaiah saw Jesus and came undone. Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he fell before him as if dead. My mom came into the presence of that God, that Christ, who is so compelling that someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. She saw his glory fill the universe. Not what she expected, but she did believe. I'm no angel, but I am God's messenger here today. And I'm here to tell you that Christ's words and works are both true. He is one with the Father. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the eternal God, the great I Am. And by believing in that, you'll have eternal life And you will be secure in your hands, his hands, because the Good Shepherd will lift you up, place you on his shoulders, and carry you safely home. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us who you are and what you are like through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can know you and believe you because we have seen Jesus and we have touched Him, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, may we not miss all that we're here to learn and to know of Christ. May we see Him for who He is. May we worship Him for the God that He's claimed to be, the one who we believe in. Father, we thank You for rescuing our souls and for securing us We ask, Lord, that you would send us forth from this place by your power and in your grace to share this great news of the gospel, to bring this light to a dark world, to help people to see their need for the good shepherd. I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives and in this church and pray you would continue to do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.